Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast where we chat to your favourite authors and get behind what really makes them put pen to paper. This week, oh, so delighted, we're joined by Daisy Buchanan, columnist, writer, author, uh, who has enjoyed an enormously varied career, fashion, entertainment, arts, uh, most popularly as Grazia's Agony Aunt. I love Dear Daisy. Uh, she also has a book club podcast of her own. This is a real pressure gig. I mean, I'm just throwing that away. A book club podcast of her own. A number one book club podcast. You might have heard of it called You're Booked. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What an introduction to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> you will have no problem at all. Uh, the Sisterhood then is out. And um, I mean, I've like it's an honest, very funny book that celebrates... Um, some of the women who have shaped your life. And it seems, why now is this being written? I think that it's a really great time to celebrate sisters. And I believe in, you know, biological and logical sisters. I've nicked that from one of my favourite writers, Armistead uh, Maupin, who talks about your logical family and your biological family. And I think that we're having so many really far-reaching conversations about feminism and... um, I say in the book, my sisters, they're the only women I'd kill for, the only women I've ever wanted to kill. But I think that a lot about the way, you know, we are at the moment, there are so many different women doing amazing things. And it's really, really hard. I think we all really want to, you know, go to bat for each other and support each other and celebrate each other. At the same time, you know, it's not always easy. And feminism doesn't just mean like loving all women. Well, it doesn't mean liking all women and thinking they're great. But I think that what this book is about is, you know, seeing everything we've got in common. And it's about really cherishing and looking for how we're similar and celebrating difference. And it's a book about how if there are women in your life, you can find something to love about them and some way of supporting them, even (laughs) if sometimes it's harder than others. There's um, you. T- you start with your with your sisters, your amazing sisters, um, and um, there's this this incredible context of um, not just having a lot of sisters, um, but also being in a very confined space with them. You eventually got a bedroom of your own. Oh, the relief I felt for you walking <laughs> up to that attic, I was palpable. Um, but um, you you were all quite close in age, apart from the, the 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 little two, weren't you? Yes, and even you know that. So the twins, Maddie and Dottie, there eight years younger than me and when I was 10 and they were two you know I was not interested but now you know I'm um I'm in my mid-30s she says delicately just about to turn 35 um (laughs) and the twins are in their 20s and that difference has just melted away um you know we are I think really close now and I think it's what's interesting and weird is how we've all got very different relationships you know, sort of separately and together. So we're a big gang. But then, well, like, you know, the twins have their own really, really, really intense connection. Being a sister is intense. I think being a twin is ultra intense. Did you ever feel excluded from that? That those those that twin relationship. A lot of other a lot of other siblings often find they feel like they're quite sort of on the outside of of a twin relationship. I guess you had the others to to soak anything like that up. Yeah. Well, Beth, he's the sister after me. When we were little, we almost had the least in common. And I think it's because we're so close in age. There's just over a year between us, and I think that your poor mum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a lot. I don't know how she did it. You know, looking back now, because my I think that um, when she was my age, you know, she she had she had six children. And I, I don't have any children, and I just you know sometimes I just I want to sit down and like breathe slowly. So I don't know how she managed. Um, 
that, yeah, because we were so close and we were sort of expected to be together all the time, I, yeah. like, I sort of hated Beth for not being like my best friend and for being so different. And she was always kind of... She, I was also really jealous of her because she was so weird and so comfortable and confident in her weirdness and just went off and had her own kind of interest. She seemed really, really comfortable with sort of being herself. And I was always trying to fit in and wondering why it was backfiring and why it wasn't really working for <laughs> it's me. It's the luxury of a younger child, babes. It's the luxury of a younger child. Because you, you were the oldest, weren't you? Um, and I think sometimes, yeah, you ha- you're forced to be the flag bearer, aren't you? You're all you're sort of put in this position where you're supposed to know what's going it's on. It's so true. Every single thing, every bit of freedom is so hard won. You yes. know, down to like being allowed to see certain films, certain bedtimes. And, you know, of course... 100%. The more, when, you know, as the oldest, my parents were, you know, they were quite strict. They had lots of energy back then. They were idealistic. <laughs> you know, by the time the twins came up, they didn't care. They were exhausted. They're just like, get up. I'm not helping you. <laughs> <laughs> and also, so um, uh, along with this as well, so there's a, there's this very busy house, um, the very busy Catholic house full of, uh, full of uh, pre-pubescent and pubescent girls. Um, and all the way through this, uh, books were your friend. Absolutely. Um, you know, that was sort of where I, you know, learned to kind of dream and imagine. I'm really, really lucky because my parents have always been readers. Um, I remember um, Beth and I had Little Women read to us. I loved it. I ate it up. Beth was like, this is the most boring book I've ever come across so in my life. Dull. And I think we were quite young. I think I would have been maybe eight and she would have been seven. So I finished it by myself. And just wow. having that, when you know you can, like, oh, I, I can read anything. I can just go off and it's all kind of up for grabs. And I think as well, because, mm. um, you know, as I was at that point in the family where my parents could sort of, you know, make an effort to control <laughs> what I was doing. Um, they were quite strict about sort of what TV I watched, and you know, it was a Catholic family yeah. as well. This upbringing was, you know, there were there were there were benchmarks everywhere. Absolutely, no sex or violence, or actually, you know, violence probably wasn't so much. It was the sex who were very. What did never. you say at one point? You know that you were coming to the conclusion that you were you you should feel guilty about the fact of even thinking about being mean to Beth. Thinking, <laughs> I was like, God, it's so restrictive. Like mind control. There's a book I love, um, a Vicarage Family by Noel Stratfield, um, and it's. I guess early autofiction. It's a novel, but it's really, really um, autobiographical. Yeah. And her character is always kind of getting into trouble. And there's this thing where it's Lent and they go to this party and they don't... I think it's it's not even a cake. It's like hundreds and thousands and sugar sprinkled on bread. And like, oh, is it a sin to eat this or is it a sin to be rude and say no thank you at the party? And there's just this torture and like, I'm the queen of overthinking. And um, I think a lot of that comes from the... Um, you know, it's uh, like Reverend Lovejoy says in The Simpsons about the Bible. It's like, have you ever read this thing? Technically, it's a sin to go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, these, I, I think, I did I read once as well that you had an imaginary friend? Oh, I did Gemma. Oh, she was naughty um, and very That's keen awesome. to get me into trouble. Did Gemma, because I think so going through, you know, you're so, you were, you were you, like you said, voraciously reading as a, as a small person. Um, and I mean, even, even, t- you know, from little women right through to... How old were you when you were reading American Psycho? Oh, gosh, far too young. Far too but young. that was the thing. I think because so many things, you know, it was sort of like I wasn't allowed. So whenever I, you know, got to... I found anything on the shelf. And I think because my parents have always sort of read so widely and um, my dad's got um, 
his brother, Chris, is a big reader and they always swap books. And I suspect that's how American Psycho <laughs> found its way onto the shelves. Um, did Gemma, it, was there, and was, did Gemma kind of help you um, read? Was he, what, 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 were the, what were the fantasies? What was the play that you had with her? Or was uh, she just the excuse for doing naughty things? A bit of both. I was definitely um, quite young, a bit too young to be reading sort of fluidly when Gemma was around. But um, I think all the, you know, that wouldn't it be fun? You know, for example, I think um, one change, because I grew up by the seaside and um, now I live by the seaside, a different bit. I'm in Margate, but... Um, I always wanted to sort of fill up like baths and sinks and make beaches and sort of in any anything where you're you know you're making a mess and I'm like but it would be fun though wouldn't it I'm like oh Gemma will probably sign off on that. <laughs> um, was through all this reading, can you remember a point where you just went actually I quite like the writing bit as well? I think maybe it was reading Matilda by Roald Dahl, which is a book I love so much. And it was, I think her, she was so powerful and unexpectedly, you know, she was a kid and she was really ignored and overlooked. And, you know, my goodness, I had a much nicer time than Matilda. There was no Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood in my life, no trench belt. But, um, you know, realising that, words can sort of ignite that in a person and that you can make up stories and you know it was again it was like finding a, a superpower I suppose like you can invent anything in a book and again you know books like that and thinking oh you know you're allowed to tell stories they don't have to be even like Little Women which I loved you know they're all quite good and quite sensible in the mm. end they learn lessons and it's like, oh a, a book has to be vaguely instructive and a bit like church but this was just oh no you can do anything you like do you remember writing stories as a kid oh all the time um and I get the only naughtiness that I really engaged in at school was um you, you know getting exercise books and this like rough books and things and um you know sometimes sort of just any paper I could get my hands on just writing and writing and writing and um Amazing. It's funny how, because I have moments, you know, as, as an adult and as a writer, and now it's, you know, it's my job and I not, I couldn't feel happier or luckier about it, but feeling really, really daunted about writing stories. Um, and then I think about how if, you know, you come back from school, and, you know, after lunch and the teacher would say this afternoon, we're writing stories. I was like, oh, this is all I've ever wanted. This is, you know, better than like a sort of get out of PE pass. And did anybody ever tell you that you could do that for a living? Did anybody, can you remember thinking, I mean, was that a possibility being an author, being a writer? When I grow up, I'm going to be a writer. I think I remember, you know, in some books, read there'd be, you know, something about the author and sort of who they were and how they got started. My mum... Um, I think she would have loved to have been a writer and she did classes and yeah. things. And she was, her and dad, but I think mum especially, always said, you know, I think you're going to do this. And I was always quite jealous of my sisters because they were really arty and really good at drawing. <laughs> and my drawing was just hilarious. I used to draw horses with snouts. I can't tell you how I managed that. But writing was always my thing and it wasn't even that I felt like oh I'm I'm good at this it was more that I couldn't not if that makes sense yeah 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 absolutely and there's so much um especially with with your sisters there's so much of it um that that rings true 
with any sibling oh, at all. Even though it's not about sisters, when I watched Derry Girls, I was, and oh. even though that's in Ireland, I think it's like the Catholic thing and that closeness and the way they squabble and the way they talk to each other and the jokes they make. I had this really eerie, like, that's that's my life with my sisters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How have they reacted to it? It's really lovely, actually. One of my favourite writers, um, Nancy Mitford, um, and actually this isn't a quote by her, it's a quote about her. Um, she had many sisters also, and a lot of her novels are about that experience in a you know fictionalised version. And I think that um, one of her sisters said to the other of Nancy, wouldn't it be awful to not have sisters and to have sisters who didn't write? And... The loveliest thing, and it's like the best compliment I could have, is I think that they've uh, all felt that it's helped them to sort of make sense of, of things and that, you know, I think we all have this, don't we, when we're little and things happen and they're entirely logical but also a bit weird. Yeah. And then you sort of step back as an adult and you're like, oh, <laughs> that was what that was. <laughs> and I think that we, the way we all see each other different, there's a, a tiny chapter about each of them. And yeah. I don't think we see ourselves how other people see us. And so it was really, really lovely to get a chance to kind of to celebrate them all yeah. individually and to write about, you know, these amazing women that I I see and how, you know, I step back and I can't quite believe they've all, you know, we're not um, like Beth, you know, she's now... Beth um, sounds awesome. I really want to meet Beth. Oh, she's great fun. She is... Um, She's a mother now. She has two of the most adorable, adorable children. I have a niece and three nephews. But, you know, when I think about the woman that she's become, when I see her being a mum and how funny she is and how kind and sort of patient and what an amazing imagination she has. You know, you said, didn't um, you say you thought that Beth would write as well, that, that oh, she was, she's going to end up winning the Booker Prize? Oh, for sure. I'm going to, um, <laughs> you know... And how, yeah, how would, and how, like balancing whether that would be a, a great bigger, thing. <laughs> maybe, you know, when we're sort of like perhaps in our 40s, I'll get the call. Yeah. Like, Damn you! <laughs> um, can you remember what your first writing job was? Ooh. Um, the moment you get paid for doing what you love. Well, when I started at uh, Bliss magazine, the Teen Bliss. Girls Mag. Oh, so much fun and that I sort of I started as um, a features intern and then I became a, a writer there but the heaven of it was it was a really 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 tiny team so I think if I'd gone into like a sort of really grand glossy I'd just be like you know <laughs> do it in a cupboard sort of like phoning people and but this was all like you know, the first day, like, okay, so we want you to write this section and this section and this section and just I still remember um going to see my friend Ruth, um, his family were just outside Oxford and going to the newsagents and it had just come out and it was um, controversial boy cover. We had McFly on the cover, um, which, you know, is always a bit of a, I don't know, mysteriously, I don't know why it is, but it's always harder to sell them with boys. But seeing that and knowing that, you know, I had not even a proper byline. Like, I think it's called a gutter credit, so you can't see your name until you it's open like it. It's like that. You have to do that. It's oh, like pressing down. There's a bit right at the beginning of the magazine where um, there'd be a question and it'd be like the list of sort of like the editorial team and yeah. everyone and they'd answer the question. And I remember reading those when I was young and being like, oh my God, who are these people? They've got the most amazing job. And knowing yeah. that I was there and, you know, saying what my favourite cheese was or scariest moment <laughs> and just... 
<laughs> it's the oh, world. It's this is everything. Um, do you? I mean, the 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 kind of the variety of subjects that you've tackled. Um, you know, all loosely bound, all loosely bound, loosely bound. And um, this is a massive umbrella statement through the eyes of a feminist, through, you know, um, being a woman and, and how we interact with the world. How do you, but then we have the TV show Made in Chelsea. How how do you, how did these things come to you? What what interests you and how do you decide what's worth pursuing as something to write about? Well, I think that with everything I do, I really, really want to be kind and I want to write jokes. And so if I can do you know, one of those things. I've been so lucky with the <laughs> breadth of fun things that I get to do. Um, and, you know, laughing is my favourite thing. Um, I love things that are funny. And if I've got an opportunity to make a joke, I will, you know, sometimes I do beauty writing and that's a traditionally world that's quite, you know, serious and straightforward and this is what this thing does. Yeah. But, you know, I can, you can write jokes about spray tans and... Um, fringes then you know it's it's such a rich area for humor no it is isn't it and you kind of just go actually once you sort of open that that lid you Mm. just you are you immediately see the endless possibilities and it's um but not many people do that because it is so kind of serious and uh uh you know and and seem to be completely crucial to our existence when you when you sit down daisy and you you're gonna gonna write uh, what what do you do because I imagine having the the journalist in you as well that you are quite used to writing wherever, whenever. It's true. I do like pressure. What I love is a short deadline where I've not got time to be nervous. And I think that with, and I'm actually um, a secret squirrel, I'm not allowed to say very much about this, but there is fiction coming next year. Um, but those sort of look, that's been a real challenge for me to have that really like long sustained deadline because what I love is for it to almost be like an exam where it's like, well, you've just got to do the best you can do in two hours. Do you, um, do you, are you straight onto um, your laptop or do you write, is there a, is there a, is there a notebook somewhere with elaborate plans? Oh, I wish there was a notebook with elaborate plans. I really, really do. I'm just so, all I can, I'm going to make another Simpsons reference and I promise I will cut myself off. You can, you listen, just pile on the Simpsons references. I'll soak them up. (laughs) I always think of, um, the Frank Grimes episode and Homer making the model nuclear plant and it's supposed to be a kids competition it's like, oh, I think this racing stripe here adds a nice touch nice. everything just feels a bit sort of homemade and coming out in a panicky flurry but I do think that my brain is better on paper than out loud I think I'm like writing and talking have sort of somehow become switched over so I'm better writing something down than I am just saying it. You're doing a great job just saying it. You are. And also, of course, the other thing is, so then how does that translate? Because you've, you know, you have you have stood up in front of audiences and delivered speeches and thoughts and ruminations and, and, and you know, musings on life. Do you, does that make you nervous in comparison? Oh, gosh, it really, really, really does. Um, but I think the best thing about it, I think it's like being brought up Catholic and that, Everything's supposed to be a bit of a... like If something lovely is going to happen, like Easter and a full day of, you know, chocolate eggs and fun, like you have to go to church every night for a week beforehand before you get the eggs. So I think I do just get so much joy and pleasure from having done things. Um, I did a TEDx talk and I was just so... I think I was nearly sick every day for three months. And I remember being on holiday because the thing about that is... um, it's not long, it's just 10 minutes, but you have to absolutely know it by heart. 
And I think I just found that really, 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 really daunting. And I remember being um, on holiday at a music festival in Portugal. And, you know, we were going to go out and see um, Arcade Fire. And, you know, my husband's like, great, you know, let's go. And I'm like, you know, trying to sort of like shut my eyes and memorise these things. But then, oh. I felt Arcade Fire would have distracted you from that. <laughs> really would have done. But um, when that talk was done, every day I just sort of like jumped out of bed. And it was like, you know, the sun is gold, the sky is blue. I've not got to do that again. Open the windows and let the bluebirds in. Um, do you when it's a big, I mean one of the nice things about about I guess about a speech or standing up or you know delivering that is that it's finished yes do you ever feel like your articles or particularly this book is that is this finished or could you have gone on did you have to grab it off her and say enough now Daisy put the book down <laughs> um, there's a Zadie Smith essay that I love not that I can think about comparing myself to Zadie Smith, who's one of my very, very favourite writers. Um, but she says that for most authors, the best time to edit your work is 10 minutes before you're due on stage at a literary festival <laughs> reading it. And that happens all the time. And I'll sort of pick up bits and be like, oh, that's, oh, oh, should I, um, I don't know if there's an extra and or that's, you know, break that sentence down. Or, um, but I think that I... I am no perfectionist. I get to a point where I just can't look at things anymore. And again, yeah. I really, really like things to be... I think that's why I love deadlines, that point where, oh, there's there really is nothing more I yeah. can do now. And I mean, anyone who has written a book knows it absolutely does take a village. I've been so, so lucky with um, this and um, with my book before with headline, How to Be a Grown-Up. Um, <laughs> Which is genius. <laughs> brief plug there. Um, I had the most incredible... Um, Editors there, um, Sarah, Grace, you know, Rosie, he's here, Jen, the whole team, really make it what it is and lift it up. And it's a really lovely position to be in where I can trust these amazing people to make sure that mm. we make something that we can all be proud of together. When you've finished, is there something that you is there something that you do? Do you is there a celebration like um, what's a face in that scary movie? Uh, <laughs> what's his face in the scary movie? What's it called? Misery. You know he has a cigar and a bottle oh. of um, really expensive champagne in his hut in the in the Alps. Do you do do you have a massive cigar, Daisy, when you finish writing a book? huge cigar? <laughs> um, I do like to buy something to celebrate um, the different cool. sort of milestones. So. Um, Actually, I've just got myself a very it's tiny it's little necklace. It's like a little diamond pendant. It's beautiful. Um, to sort of to celebrate um, it's coming up. But yeah, I do, I do like a, um, not a cigar, but a glass of champagne in the bath. Um, I really like those. You can get those bottles in M&S and it is just sort of one glass that you can really, really savour. Or sometimes I take myself out for a, um, but I think it's really important to, to mark the end of things. And because, you know, I'm, um, I work from home sort of by myself. Um, and I think that if you do that, and I think more people never doing that, it's really, really important to have those rituals. And that's, you know, one thing I've learned about growing up is you sort of, you know, you've got to celebrate yourself. I'm really lucky that, you know, there are lots of people in my life and lots of women in my life who are great at, you know, celebrating me and we celebrate each other. But I think it's also really nice to make time to do that and to you know savor something that you're proud of um you're listening to the magic book club podcast we're going to go behind the cover and ask the important questions and talk more with daisy after this 
Time now for Behind the Cover. We're going to ask our author today, the brilliant Daisy Buchanan, uh, to read us an extract of their new book um, that particularly resonates with them. Daisy, what have, what have you chosen? Which bit have you chosen of the sisterhood today that you're going to read for us? Here we go. I've got some advice at the very end for my sisters, which might be fun to share. If a pair of shoes cost £800 and they have been reduced to £200, Buying them doesn't save £600. It means you've spent £200. It's better to be a year or five late for your smear test or the dentist than it is not to go at all. (laughs) If you're having a heated argument with a friend about celebrities called Jeremy and you can't see eye to eye, check that one of you isn't saying Clarkson when you mean Paxman. (laughs) When you're mucking about in duty free, Spray the perfume on the little card, not on you. This is for your sake and the sake of whoever you're sitting next to on the plane. (laughs) Eat when you're hungry. Stop when you're full. Don't feel obliged to clear your plate unless you definitely want to eat it. Throwing food away isn't ideal, but it's better than having indigestion. If it's remotely possible, try not to get too hung up on the state of your upper arms. Some of the best and smartest women I know would be ruling the world as we speak if they weren't expending quite so much mental energy on fretting over their arms. (laughs) If someone introduces themselves to you as the kind of person who tells it like it is or says, I speak as I find and I don't pull any punches, run quite fast in the other direction. Never buy any classic clothing if you try it on and it makes you feel a little bit heavy and low, as if you're compromising your secret special self. Black trousers aren't a handy wardrobe essential if you can't look at them without thinking, oh, my useful practical trousers. If a garment's USP is that you can spill coffee on it, but the stain doesn't show up, leave it be. (laughs) Conversely, you would be surprised to learn just how much wear you can get out of a gold sequined maxi skirt. They're brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm hoping all learned through bitter, bitter experience. <laughs> we thank you for your bitter experience. <laughs> They're making our day. Uh, right, then we've got some questions from uh, our lovely listeners. Emma on Instagram has said, um, I know this book is all about raising other women up and I think that we actually do a pretty good job of that these days. How much of an issue do you think it is, say, still in the workplace? Oh, that is a really good question. I think that, there's so much kind of institutionalised sexism in the workplace that we don't even really question. So, you know, just things that we are, we've kind of grown up with as soon as we've entered the working world and we just take for granted. Um, and, and I've definitely, I've worked with women who have inspired me and raised me up and been great. I've also worked with women who I think were really, really successful at a time when it was really, really hard to be successful. And I think that... You know, because sexism isn't just something that affects men, I think that we grow up in a sexist world and we're probably sexist against ourselves. So Mm. I think that if you're experiencing that at work from women, you know, it's horrible and it it shouldn't happen. And, you know, you should always, you know, if whenever you can and whenever you feel able, speak out against it. But just sort of remember that the people who are treating you that way, they might have had a really, really different working experience and just try to be a little bit compassionate and understanding and I think that often it's much easier isn't it to look out for other people than for ourselves and so I think if we've got an eye on what we can do for you know for other people and sort of see what they're experiencing with what we can you know make things a bit better 
you know, I think that it's big changes can be really hard and really daunting, but any small positive changes we can make are, you know, going to be positive. And sometimes it's just about paying attention and asking questions and, you know, not accepting that something has to be the status quo. Detail, ripple, little ripple effects. Uh, Daisy, we're going to move on to the important questions today. Uh, the important questions. We're almost at the end of our time, but we can't let you go. Uh, question number one. I'm so looking forward to these with you. Uh, question number one. If you could have written any book in history, what would it be? Oh, my. What a question. Um, and it is very tempting to say Little Women again because it is so great. And I did just see the film and I'm in a state of like, Little Women. Love. I just reread it because I, I haven't seen the film, but I just reread it. It's such a cracking book. There's so much going on. What I love is that it's, you know, they do, they love each other, but sometimes they really hate each other. And not to do any spoilers, but certain things that happen to books, you know, it's um, that relationship between Joe and Amy and that fractiousness and the way it's so intense. It's uh, hard relate, as they say. So not little women. So not little women. Um, off the top of my head, just because I have been um, rereading it recently and every line makes me laugh and I think it's so special and magical. I'm going to say The Growing Pains of Adrian Mole. I think Sue Townsend's absolute comic genius and like the funniest writer who has ever, ever lived. And if I could just, you know, write a page that's as funny as any sentence of hers, I would die happy. If you could be any character in any book, who would you be? Oh, now I love Jilly Cooper. I really, 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 really love Jilly Cooper. I'm in a Jilly Cooper book club. Shout out to my Jillies. That's another um, WhatsApp that I'm very much embroiled in. Um, and there are lots of fabulous, glamorous women in Jilly Cooper. And they're all sort of very plucky and very kind. There is um, a, in The Man Who Made Husbands Jealous, which is a great favourite of mine, there's a character called Flora and she's very beautiful and she's very kind and she has an amazing singing voice and she's in the orchestra and she's a viola player. So <laughs> I have no musical talent and I'd love some, so I'm going to say Flora. Um, That's amazing. It's the viola that did it, wasn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a hot... You know, I've seen people playing the violin. How, how do you do that? Be like, yeah, <gasps> having a special power. Um, and it is because you've got to go through so much terrible noise to get to the good stuff as well, you know, just just absolute persistence of people who play string instruments is, is beyond the, me. I think that to be successful at anything, it's just being able to do so much is just hard and uncomfortable yeah. and awful to get to the good bits. So I figure that if you can learn how to play the violin, there's probably nothing you can't do. You've got the skills. <laughs> um, and if you could only read one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, oh, it's really, really hard. It's the hardest question to pick one. I mean, I'm asking um, the biggest book fan I think we've ever talked to um, <laughs> um, a question like that. There's, um, it's Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. So at least once a year, and I try to ration myself, I read The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford. I think I've read it every year since I was 13. It's a very quick read. Um, it's just, it's very charming. It's unexpectedly funny. And I think it's one of the best books about love and romance and the hope of it ever. What she writes about so beautifully is that sense of wanting to be in love. And I am a, a total romantic. But I've also discovered the American writer, Anne Lamott, um, who wrote a brilliant, brilliant book that's a guide to reading, Bird by Bird. And it's got some of the best, um, sorry, writing, the best writing advice ever. And there's an essay book called Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. And... 
she was um, an alcoholic and an addict and she is really, really funny and very, very humble. And she is a writer who is compassionate about humans at their worst and wants everyone to be at their best. And that's all I aspire to be. And sometimes if I'm struggling, reading or rereading an animal essay in the morning sets me up for the day. So it's between those two. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to seek her out and do that. An Anna Lamott essay first thing in the morning, before your porridge or afterwards? Oh, before, I think. <laughs> um, Daisy, I, I'm just, it's frustrating because I could talk to you forever. I mean, you know, I would love to ask you another million questions. Um, uh, Daisy, thank you. The Sisterhood is out now. You've been listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. Until next time, happy reading. And if you've enjoyed this episode, remember to rate it and subscribe. Subscribe.